0: Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 21, beginning in verse 28, where Jesus says, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. So which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. So, good morning. It was a short reading, was it not? Um, I thought I'd start by mentioning, uh, for a lot of kids, starting junior high can create a whole host of questions about your identity. I don't know why that is, but it seems like all through elementary school, you don't even think about who you are. And yet, the second you get to junior high, all of a sudden, you've got all these options. You could be a jock, a prepster, a bookworm, you could even be a little bit gangster growing up on the hardened streets of the SCV, right? So when I started seventh grade, I decided I wanted to be a skater. You see, one of my closest friends, his name was Kenny, and I thought Kenny was the coolest kid ever. And the thing is, Kenny was just really good at skateboarding. And so as I started seventh grade, I made the decision that that's what I was going to be. I was gonna be a skater. Now, in order to make that happen, I had to start dressing in a particular way. You see, in the 90s, sort of been in the mid to late 90s, skaters had a very specific look. And so what I did in order to kind of achieve this look is the first thing is I started wearing my dad's pants. Which probably doesn't sound weird until you find out that my dad was six foot four with a 42-inch waist. I was like 5'6", 120, so the pants were just huge. And so then I would wear a kind of a tight t-shirt, usually with a skateboard company written across the front, like independent. And then I buzz my hair short, put a bunch of sun in it, sun in into it, which made it turn a weird tinge of orange. And then I took an obscene amount of hair gel and I spiked it straight up. And then the last thing is for my shoes, I bought a pair of Etneys. If you're not familiar with Etnies, that's kind of a skater shoe. And so what I did, if you skateboard a lot, the thing about this is you tend to get a hole on the side of your shoe when you skate a lot. Uh, So right on the outside part, it's because of the grip tape, and when you do a lot of tricks, the grip tape eventually tears a hole in your shoe. And so what I did is I bought these brand new shoes, took them by hand, and literally just rubbed them against the grip tape on my skateboard until I had a hole. Then I put them on, walked down to the bus stop, ready to start seventh grade. So toward the end of eighth grade, I'm playing video games with my friend Kenny. Uh, It was a game called Skate or Die, (laughs) if you remember that. And at the beginning, you get to pick which character you're going to be. And so I'm going through the characters, and one of the guy's names is Poser Pete. And so I go, Kenny, what does that mean? What is a poser? And I'll never forget it. He looks at him and he goes, you. You. You're a poser. Wait, what? So here's the thing. Even though I was a quote-unquote skater, I wasn't really a skater. Truth be told, and my friend Kenny kind of knew this, I hated skateboarding. In particular, I just was always afraid of falling. So even though I dressed like a skater, even though I talked like a skater, even though to pretty much everyone I looked like a skater, I wasn't actually a skateboarder. And you see, in skater culture, they have a name for that. It's a poser. Meaning you're pretending to be someone that you're not. So in today's reading, Jesus tells this parable about a father with two sons. And what happens is the father tells each of his sons to go work in the vineyard. Now just to pause there, that's meant to be God the father telling us to live out his will. Similar to last week, if you were with us last week, uh, this is just picking up on a theme that's prominent throughout Scripture, in particular, that we were made to bear fruit to God. And so to go work in the vineyard means you live your life for God. Not partially, not not half-heartedly, but fully. Uh, You trust His word, you do His will, you follow His voice, and so He's telling each of His sons, do that. And what happens is there are two different responses These are essentially two different responses that we could have to the will of God. So to start with the first son, what he does is he just gives an immediate no. He says to God, not going to do it. And yet this is a parable, and so this is not saying, I don't think this is saying, some people just verbally say no to God. More so this is saying some people give every indication that they will never live out God's will. In other words, no one would look at this person and think he's going to be saved. He's a prolific sinner. It's the guy who's been an alcoholic for 25 years. It's the girl who's been sleeping around since high school. It's the husband who's had four divorces. It's the, the wife who's had five abortions. It's the repeat offender. It's the sexually confused. It's the family you would never trust your kids with. All of which is to say these are people who are rebelling against the will of God for their lives, typically in very destructive ways. And yet then it says, they changed their mind. They changed their mind. And you see the word for changing their mind, it's this Greek word, metanoia. And that's the word for repentance. So what this is saying is they were going their own way of life, and I think you could add to that, they were making a mess of things. But you see, eventually they came to the conclusion This is not working. And so they repent, which means they turn from that old life. They go into the vineyard of God. So that's the first son. What about the second? What it says in the parable is the second son gives an immediate yes to God. Which which means if you look at this son's life, it's going to give you every indication that he's doing God's will. In fact, if I can put it this way, I don't think it's a stretch. This particular son probably is going to look Christian. He doesn't do drugs. He doesn't get drunk. Heck, he doesn't even cuss. He doesn't have a single scandalous sin to speak of. And so by all appearances, he's doing God's will. And yet what Jesus says about him is he actually doesn't go into the vineyard. In other words, in spite of all the outward indications, if you could just start peeling back the layers, and if you could get to his heart, he is not at all close to God. And that's not to say that he doesn't try to do the right thing, he does, but it is to say that he's the one in control of that. His will is his own. His heart remains hard. He still governs his own life. All of which means he's a poser. He is pretending to be someone that he is not. So the question is, why is that? Think about it. How come the people who are rebelliously ruining their life are actually more likely to repent and be saved? Than the people who look respectable and religious. I'm gonna give you two reasons. We're gonna spend the rest of our time on this, uh, but this is why you and I would be tempted to keep God at arm's length instead of actually having Him come in and make us new. Uh, So, to start with the first reason. Just to kind of preface this with a caveat, I hope this doesn't feel like a high school English class with this first reason. Not like there's anything wrong with that, but it might feel like it. Uh, So one of my favorite novels, it's a book called The Scarlet Letter. If you've read that, it's by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it's a story about a woman named Hester Prynne. So Hester Prynne lives in early America, and in particular in early America, it's Puritan America. And so this is a really religious society. And you see, what happens early on is Hester Prynne commits adultery. She's not married, and yet she sleeps with some guy, and whereas no one knows about it at first, what happens is she becomes pregnant, which is kind of hard to hide. So as someone who is not married, living in a really religious society, pregnant with a child that no one but Hester Prynne knows the father, that's just not going to go great. And so what they do to her for the rest of her life is they make her wear a big scarlet letter A. So what does that stand for? It stands for adultery. So literally, that is her identity in the society she lives in. She's just an adulterer. She's a sinner. She's a mess. Everyone knows it. And so she literally wears her shame on her sleeve. But who's the father? (laughs) No one in the town knows it, but it's a man named Arthur Dimmesdale. And the thing about it is Arthur Dimmesdale is the town minister. In other words, he's everyone's pastor. And so throughout the book, he's trying to keep it under wraps. He can't bring himself to confess it. You see, because unlike Hester Prynne, his identity in their society is still intact. His his identity is he is religious. He's respectable. Everyone thinks well of him. And so if he confesses that he's the father, all that is gone. He's going to lose his identity. So for the vast majority of the book, he won't do it. He just chooses to keep looking respectable and religious instead of actually repenting and being renewed. So if we go back to our question, if you remember the question, it's why would anyone do that? And you see, one major reason why is pride. And what I mean by that is, at least in the book, Arthur Dimmesdale's identity is so wrapped up in the opinions of other people that he can't bear the shame of being honest. And so what happens is the small-town pastor becomes a world-class poser. He's just pretending to be someone he's not. And yet... At this point, I'm going to warn you, I'm really spoiling the book. (laughs) Uh, But over time, he starts falling apart. And in particular, it gets revealed that he's somehow developing this red mark on his own skin that looks like the letter A for adultery. But the thing about this is, in order to see the mark, you have to peel back all his clothes which is symbolic. It means in order to see his shame, you have to peel back all the respectability and religion that he is covering it with. And that is precisely the problem with pride. Whereas on the outside, we look fine. On the inside, we are not free. Uh, So one thing I want to say about this, I'm not saying everyone has these huge sins in the closet that are just waiting to come out and cause a major stir. But what I am saying is everyone has... Secret sins. Sins only we and God know about that are just waiting to be confessed. Because in the meantime, they are causing a major separation between us and the Lord. And yet, because of pride, not only are we not admitting our issues to others, but most of the times we can't even admit it to ourselves. So that is one reason people tend to prefer looking respectable rather than being renewed. It's just hard to give up our pride. Let's go to the second reason. Uh, In the past, whenever I've taught confirmation classes, I've always done this one particular exercise with the kids. Uh, What I'll do is I'll have a kid stand on a chair it's probably not safe, but I do this anyway. <laughs> uh, but I have a kid stand up on the chair, and they're facing the back part of the chair. And then I put another kid behind them so that they're down below. And so once they're in place, I'll tell the kid up in the chair, I want you to fall back into the other person's arms. They're going to catch you, I say to them. You've just got to fall. And so let me ask you, what do you think they do up in the chair? pretty mixed based on who the kid is. Some of the kids are totally trusting and they just fall into the other person's arms. Some of the kids are totally afraid. And they keep their feet firmly planted on the chair. And I would say most of the kids are kind of a mix between the two. Meaning they kind of fall, but then they try to regain, re- regain control. And then if they do fall, they're all scrunched up and hesitant as they go. So you can tell this is anything but a free fall. And so whenever I've done this, inevitably what has happened is the kids will say they want me to get in the chair. So this one time in particular, they just would not give up on it. They just kept saying, come on, do it, you get in the chair. And so then one of the kids, I'll never forget, he goes, don't you trust us? And I looked him square in the eye and I said, no, no. I don't trust you at all. You see, because even if they wanted to catch me, a lot of junior high kids are just kind of pipsqueaks. No offense, guys. Uh, but even if you want to catch me, you probably don't have the strength to do it. And the thing is, in my mind, in order to trust someone with your life, that person's got to have both. They can't just have the goodwill to catch you, they also have to have the power to catch you. So here's why I mentioned that that exercise is meant to illustrate trust. And in today's passage, when it talks about going into God's vineyard, one of the things that means is trusting God with your life. You're leaving the firm footing of being able to control your own will. That's the chair. And you're falling into the governing arms of God. That's the call. And you see, whereas confirmation kids might have the desire but not the power to catch us, The Lord has both. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that his will for you is 100% good. He wants to catch you. Don't doubt that. But on top of that, his power over this world is 100% sovereign. Don't doubt that either. If you and I would just fall into his arms, we could be free. If we go back to the parable, the second son won't do it. Which means he doesn't trust God. He's more of a scrunched up, I'm going to pretend to fall, but my feet will never leave the chair kind of guy. And yet the first son just falls. He just goes into the vineyard. And here's why, at least this is my supposition. If you think about the first son, he has already tried directing his own life, he's been standing on the chair. So he's tried directing his own life, and all he did was make a mess of things. And so if you can't trust your own wisdom, why not try God's? So those are two reasons we might choose to look respectable and religious instead of repenting and being renewed. It's because we don't want to let go of our pride, and at the same time, we don't want to let go of our power. And so just briefly, I want to finish today by making the case for why it would be good to let go of both. Just to start with pride, whether it's admitting that something isn't working or it's confessing that you're not who you've presented yourself to be. Almost no one wants to do that, and I get it. And yet the question we need to ask ourselves is what if giving up our pride meant we could find something to be truly proud of? Or to put that differently, what if letting go of our identity with people meant we could get a new identity with God? You see, when Christ got crucified, he was totally stripped and covered in shame. In fact, that's the whole point of the crucifixion. It's meant to cover that person in shame. And yet, that's not his shame that Christ was being covered in, it's ours. And the reason he did that is so when we give up our old identity of being all put together, we discard those clothes, then we can get a new one, new identity of being saved by grace, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So again, why hang on to our pride when God wants to give us real glory. The other thing that's hard to let go of is power. Meaning we're kind of afraid of falling, so we want to stay in control of our life. And yet, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what if giving up our power is the way to discover another power? And not just any other power, but one that is so powerful that it never drops anyone. That it makes everything work for your good that it even raises the dead to new life. What if that's the kind of power we could discover? Again, when Christ got crucified, he was emptying himself of any power. He was falling into the arms of God. And the thing is, if there was no God, if there was no higher power to catch him, that would have been a really foolish move. And Jesus would still be dead. In which case, he should not be followed. And yet, if there is a God whose power is perfect, then that's the wisest move you could make. And Jesus is alive to prove it. And so again, the question, why hang on to your own power and be stuck on the chair of sin when God's power is perfect and you could be free? I want to nudge you (laughs) and I want to nudge myself off the edge of that chair of looking all respectable and into the freedom of being new. Do you want a new identity and a new power? I know I do. And so if you do too, let's pray. Father God, you've called us to yourself. You want your will to be sovereign over ours and you've promised that that's how we'll find freedom and forgiveness and real flourishing. And so God, our prayer is simple. Help us to trust you when you call. God, by your grace, enable us to take steps of faithfulness. to reject all the things that would erode our trust and hinder our obedience. Lord, we want what you have promised and so make us to love what you command. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.